And now, Box 39 Red Button is handing over its slot to one of its stablemate programs. This is Bill's Big Bag of Only Onions. Every evening after work, I eat a pile of bubble and squeak and grouch at my insufferable family. I take naps in the car in the garage. I go through our neighbor's rubbish bins. I strangle all but one kitten from each litter. I lie out on the back lawn, stark naked, gazing up at the stars, stewing on how much I dislike my children. Yes, I'm afraid it's true. In almost every detail, every proclivity, every attitude and deed and word, despite all my efforts to the contrary and trying so hard not to be, I have become exactly like my father. Jeremy replaced Harry, his recently deceased son, on a group holiday with his college mates. Distraught and twisted by grief, he hoped to get to know more about the lost child he'd been rather emotionally estranged from since his rebellious mid-teens. Jeremy soon realized he didn't like Harry's heartless, self-absorbed friends at all and after bouts of day-long student-style boozing, he started suspecting that they had, in fact, murdered Harry. It ended with him setting fire to the holiday villa, with all the innocent, passed-out college students inside, and the Portuguese police finding him naked, wandering down a dark country lane. gorgeous way she looked at me always made nonsense of the things I'd almost say. We'd met during riding lessons, pottering along country lanes, picking our way through woods. Then, one day we were trotting round a field. I kicked my horse too hard and it galloped, hell for leather, totally out of my control, two hundred yards south, two hundred east, two hundred north and two hundred more, back to the group where it decided to stop. This spectacle was enough to set up Knickerbocker Glories, just the two of us, the following Saturday afternoon at the Golden Egg. Please don't hang up, he blurted as soon as he heard someone had picked up. Please listen to me, this isn't a hoax. Thank goodness you took the call, I need to talk to someone. Just hear me out, please. I'm kind of desperate, to be honest. This is the only chance I've got. If you can't help me, then all I ask is that you tell someone else. 
I'm in this small villa on a quiet headland overlooking a Portuguese beach. You'd get two weeks occupancy per year for only £2,500. There was a click. They'd hung up. I didn't attend father's funeral back home. There was just too much resentment. Me and my bruised brothers. The autocracy of mutual resentments that our father had used to rule and raise us. To compete. To strive. To envy. To undermine. To bully. To betray. To torture. To vanquish to fail, to fume, to weep, to fall asleep, weeping, alone. Me and my irreparably poisonous brothers. So I was a no-show at father's funeral, no sibling reunion. Besides, if I'd set foot in the country, there'd have been questions. The envelope, the foreign stamps, the anthrax and father's long-anticipated end. Someone had spiked my drink. From the wings, my guitar on the stage appeared to be a hundred yards away. How long would it take to walk to it? Would I have to keep waving to my fans till I got there? What if they didn't know who I was? Would muscle memory kick in? Surely the word memory is used metaphorically with muscle. Surely memory is a function of the brain. Is my brain, in fact, a really complex muscle? Is the brain's complexity irreducible? It was all moot, however. We didn't play because they had to take me to hospital. April had arrived and the plague was in its sixth month. Maths teacher Edmund Trott firmly believed it had been created by Russian scientists and was being spread by texts sent using mobile phones. History teacher Rachel Powers took him aside conspiratorially and offered him an experimental pharmaceutical that would enable him to see a blue glow around the heads of those of his students who were carrying the plague. It's not a capsule or a pill, he asked. No, answered Rachel. It's called a blotter. An hour later, the police arrived to arrest Edmund for spraying his students with disinfectant.
Though I'd been waiting at the gate, wearing headphones, I'd missed the last call and missed my flight. I'd need a massively good excuse for being late for work. Illness? Family crisis? Burglary? A close relative's death? I watched from the departure gate as the plane I should have been on taxied, then raced down the runway. It lifted off and, in wretched slow motion, climbed up and up acutely, hideously, before stalling and falling back to earth tail-first at the far end of the runway, exploding in catastrophic flames. Rather shamefully, my immediate thought? I won't need any excuse now. Timmy yelped. I'd already seen it, at the traffic lights, a man in the back fiddling with his spectacles. But it was the car. Magnificent. Look! A brand new 1974 bronze-coloured Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow four-door saloon with a 6,750cc L410 V8 four-speed hydromatic engine. Look! Timmy squealed. I am looking. Ten years old, but I knew my cars. I had a matchbox model of it. First time for real, though. And off it sped. Did you see him? He did the thing with his glasses. For us. Who? I asked. See who? What's the matter with you? That was Eric Morecambe. It's not that I didn't realise monoculture in farming was dangerous. I'd been talked into growing exclusively ingredients for aromatic compounds by an executive dressed incongruously but unflappably in a white suit and white Panama hat, somehow without a spot of mud on his trousers. He'd flown in from Switzerland to seal the deal with the new farmers' consortium, who'd ignored the risk from disease, pest outbreaks, declining soil fertility, and world markets' mercy. But now I was ruined. I mean, splash on and aftershave, eau de cologne, eau de toilette, eau de parfum. Who needed this stuff during the pandemic? felt at the ground like a sack of sweet potatoes. The blood in my mouth tasted metallic and wicked. Pain was dull and everywhere. My vertical eyes peered through horizontal grass blades. Tall, teeming greens, nostrils itched by their oniony scent, swaying slightly, dappling me with needles of blinding sun. I glimpsed the horror of a soldier's boots passing. My breathing stopped, motionless and damp, chest burning, roaring silence. I wanted to sleep, just surrender to the sleep, but I knew it'd be the end. 
However, as I have been able to describe all this, I obviously survived. My afterlife has taken a serious blow. I mean, the substance of my afterlife. You think I'm being overdramatic? Because of the bereavement? Maybe so. But don't underestimate what her death means. Now there's nobody else left alive who knew me when I was younger than 18. All that substance, memories, lost... I've never believed we're everlasting, but we do continue to exist in the memories of those who live on after we go. Now my afterlife will be shrunken, oversimplified. There'll be nothing from my first 18 years, the very years that explain the terrible things that came thereafter. down to the location of the ill-considered, short-lived art gallery to seek out an angle for this story. It had been on a street corner in a shabby district that bustled with downtrodden desperation and no visible extravagance. The gallery, now boarded up, had had six paintings, a chair, a coffee maker on a tiny table. Then, I actually witnessed the metaphor I needed. I saw a tiny flower reaching up through a crack in the pavement, only for it to be destroyed by a wizened old man dragging a massive bag of used plastic bottles. There was my angle. dog-eared eyes were fixed on the dark, far wall of the bar, avoiding the dozen or so dimly lit tables. He played bitter blues, his wizened face tilted sullenly, his gravelly voice sliding around begrudgingly, approximately searching for the notes. The song climaxed with disdainful, discordant strumming before he flung the acoustic guitar to the floor and stomped on it with his goth boots, destroying it. Silence. The bar manager's facetious clapping echoed across the empty room. The singer snapped out of it and spoke in a crisp, plummy voice. Did I pass the audition? Sorry, no, said the barman. Of a 
buffeted by the whipping gusts, the wailing gale, chugging, demented, a hurtling train, the, the chopping strobe obscenely stabbing, half psychosis, half hypnosis, clinging to the sodden rope, orange plastic, clamoring my neck, my ears, icy salt, burning brittle cheeks, tasting like death, merciless turmoil, bleaching whiteness, flickering with malignant black, the furious inky waves, writhing murderously below, above, amber flashes, growing, until four arms pull me into the helicopter, slapping and patting me like I'd scored a goal. I peer towards a kiwi voice with an otherworldly white spherical head, yelling to me over the demented din. Merry Christmas, mate. I visited friends I hadn't seen for almost five years. My big news was that I was now a strict vegan. Vegetables, grains, nuts, fruits, nothing from animals, no cheese, no eggs. Anyway, they served up a huge sizzling steak smothered in melted cheese, fried egg on top, crispy potatoes roasted in pork fat. I polished it all off dutifully. It was then that I announced that I'd become a vegan. Oh no, they shrieked. Why didn't you say something? I looked at the empty plate. Well, I said, you're so kind and I didn't want to make a fuss. is bulging with ripe, firm and tasty onions and each one is a wonderful 100 word story that has been fashioned and crafted to plump up your senses and entertain your soul. It took her six days to ride her white horse from her village to the capital, where she'd stand for president. She never spoke to anyone. Some interpreted this silence to mean she'd solve problems, not just talk about them. For others, her silence either protested or accepted patriarchy. Others interpreted riding the horse as symbolizing environmentalism or championing an agrarian economy or the poor. Others saw it more broadly, endorsing traditionalism, with the horse's white coat symbolising clean politics. The coalition she built was a work of genius and unstoppable. After her inauguration, she abolished all future elections. it was reckless but it gave him shockingly physical solace amid the rock-bottom exhaustion and the cul-de-sac of baffled doctors he sat on a stool in the cubicle freezing water pounding on his eyebrows and scalp and then he was no longer aware of the drumming on his forehead no longer aware of the rioting memories and trains of thought no longer aware of the future 
no longer aware of anything that had come before. Indeed, there was no longer a he, except in the stories of people remembering him, feeling his presence, and never letting him disappear. of Wivenhoe was staying a few nights with old friends Philomena and her novelist husband Larry at their secluded scuba diving lodge near Monado, Indonesia. They urged her to go for a dive, but she waved the idea away and laughed. Nevertheless, the next day, as she ran her fingers along the coral and peered the kaleidoscopic fish 50 meters down in the Pacific Ocean. She surrendered to the cloying rasp of her own breathing and realized she'd never been this far removed in every sense. From the restrained bustle of the House of Lords. In all her working life. You are listening to... Bill's Big Bag of Only Onions. The Beacons and the Baubles the lantern on the stairs. I almost hung my hat there. It was really quite a scare. The candles on the altar almost caught me in their glare. I was almost blinded by the light and a voice I thought was there. I almost saw a shepherd and lambs there being fed, but the hunger that had them bleating was hunger inside their heads. The baubles are like fireworks, fleeting across the sky, making countless different colours shine like beacons inside our minds. For roads that seem bound for nowhere are really quite a scare. syndrome is when you suddenly start speaking with an accent. You can get it after an head injury. It's a brain thing. And it's for real. Properly foreign. Rhythm, cadency, intonation. Well, tell you what, I had a bump on my head and I went weird. I had some sort of talk like Shakespeare syndrome. Really rare, apparently. When I talked, I had this bizarre insight into feelings and motives, inner monologues, light, dark, changes in pace, and I delve into right and wrong really well. I even coined new words. Seriously, flowery language. Anyway, I got better.
I was invited to be the judge for a speech competition at an English language school in Indonesia. I didn't know the owner. I watched 12 kids perform and was asked to pick the top three. The disappointed owner called me into her office and asked repeatedly why number three was not number one. But I stuck to my guns. Nevertheless, she went back and announced the results with my number three promoted to number one. I decided to be philosophical about it. The announcement of the winner drew applause. A parent leaned towards me. Isn't she delightful? She's the owner's daughter, you know. Silver sliver of sliced ice, you glimmer, velveteen veneered, in pearly, shinily light luster. Sizzlingly, you sting the tongue, awash with mingled co-tastes, soaking up the flavors of assorted vegetables. Paradox. You are partly complimentary, part pinnacle, onion, layered all of lace, tender globe, weeping, knifed, you split into many snips and cuboid diamonds, bringing tears to my eyes. Christmas lunch had been the usual disaster. Everybody was still sitting at the table, staring at dirty plates, half-eaten food. An edgy gloom had descended, suffocating even the steely small talk. Nobody wanted to be the first to stand or withdraw. Mother and father thought my brother had married badly. They'd never forgiven him. His wife knew it. And she and I hadn't spoken for years. My ex-husband had had an affair with her. I picked up a jolly-looking cracker and prodded it ruefully towards my brother. He sprung up, knocking his chair over, and screamed in my face, Don't you dare! Sergei, born on a Russian farm, left school at eleven. He was a brawler, a bruiser, and a dunce. Nevertheless, he'd managed to inherit his culture's quintessential legacy, its language. Russian links words and uses suffixes that vary greatly. All must be memorized. It has an insanely complex system of verb tenses, moods, impenetrable case systems for nouns, adjectives with numerous exceptions, no articles, mystifying pronouns, inexplicable word order. However, this no mean feat was all for nothing. Sergei stood up too straight in his trench. His skull was obliterated by a German sniper. Interestingly, German is another complex language. I thought I'd travel from Wivenhoe to Ipswich in 100 words. First to Elmstead Market, then by road to Little Bromley and Horsley Cross, on to Wicks and Rabness, 
then over fields to Bradfield Heath, then Missley. After Manningtree I crossed into Suffolk and reached Catterwade and Brantham, soon after Stutton and Holbrook. Then I went by road to first Witherstone and then Freston. After a rest I arrived in Worstead and nearby Belstead before reaching Chantry, with my destination now in sight. But alas, I could not press on to Ipswich because my hundred words were all used up. Russian sleeper agent in Britain since the age of 16. Smuggled in, fake identity, I awaited the call. Decades passed. I held down all manner of jobs. Paid taxes, saved money, got married, had kids, supported Colchester United, played club cricket till I was 50, liked Indian food, IPA bitter, salt and vinegar crisps, bangers, Mars bars and Marmite. On my 65th birthday, I received a call from an unknown number. I'd been deactivated and told not to return to Russia. Huh? Banned from my own motherland? What was I supposed to do? Just live in Britain? Listen to Bill's Big Bag of Jazz Onions on Cone Radio. Due to complaints from local residents about the inaccessibility and alienating nature of jazz, the program is broadcast late on Sunday evenings when hardly anyone is listening. Bill's Big Bag of Jazz Onions, inaccessible and alienating music, every Sunday at 11 p.m. sat across the table exchanging fixed stares with great solemnity. Well, they would have been looking into each other's eyes but for the mobile phones they were holding in front of their faces, each pointing at the other. What we lose in terms of spontaneity we'll gain in terms of precious documentation, he said. Indeed, she agreed, carefully raising her other hand and touching the mobile phone's screen to adjust the focus. Well then, she said. Right then, he said. Ready? She nodded from behind the phone. Ready. Will you marry me? He asked. Yes, I will, she said. Wedding receptions in Java are very samey. A large room, no walls, high pagoda roof on columns, catering presented by speciality food stalls, chairs around the edge, a keyboardist and singer rendering dangdut songs. You arrive, 
You walk along a red carpet under arches of flowers to the stage where the newlyweds stand in front of ornate furniture flanked by their parents. You queue, then shake everyone's hand before grabbing food and sitting. I'd almost finished my plateful when an organizer approached. Excuse me, mister, who are you exactly? Apparently, the wedding I wanted was 200 meters further down the road. to Bill's Big Bag of Only Onions. I cannot believe I made such a blunder after weeks of traipsing around Europe on the trains. On arriving at Seville, Knowing the connection for the day's last train to Malaga was tight, I was told it actually departed from a different station across the city whose roads were chock-a-block with fiesta traffic and whose hotels were all full and I'd missed the friend for whom I'd no contact details who'd prearranged to meet me in Malaga and who'd then drive me to his villa somewhere near Marbella. So I drank a bottle of wine and slept on a bench. I was washing the graveyard dust from my feet with water from the well when I noticed the door to the abandoned mansion was ajar. Earlier I had been inspecting the splendid headstone of the man who lived there, a headstone befitting an advisor to no less than the president himself. Inside everything was choked with dust. Yellowing photographs on the walls showed his smiling children. I found myself in a library full of biographies of famous men, generals and leaders. An oil painting depicted the owner of the house and the dashing soon-to-be dictator decades ago, sitting side by side on a red sofa smoking cigars. I sat on the same red sofa, which was still there in the same library. I looked at them. Had they foreseen all the killings that their schemes would entail, I wondered.
all those library finds as a kid, not returning books in time. Is it an illusion? These regrets, all this time that's passed. Didn't take enough photograph when I was young to make the illusions linger. Recollections expiring, playing freely. The guitar, now silenced by time's obstinate arthritic knuckles. Mere illusions? Evocations, hastening time's willful march, hurtling towards the diminishing future. Indelible images of change, the graying hair, years flying pig-headedly by. Illusions all? Surely not. Yet, someone far cleverer than me, Albert Einstein, had no doubt. The distinction between past, present and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. In 1914, John Middleton was serving with the 7th Yorkshire Regiment in the British Army in India. In 1915, they were redeployed to Egypt before being sent to Gallipoli to fight against Turkey. In 1916, Middleton's unit was evacuated and returned to Egypt, where it joined the Egyptian Expeditionary Force which guarded the Suez Canal. In 1917, he and his regiment were sent to the Western Front, where they remained until the armistice in 1918. He wasn't demobbed. Instead, the British Army sent him to fight the Bolsheviks. He was killed in a bar brawl in Murmansk in 1919. When I get my civic clothes on, oh, how happy I will be. I do what I want to. I do as I please. Thinking of others wouldn't be me. I'm giving off sunshine. I'm turning the stars. Why don't you breathe me, whoever you are? I just want to cause a song and dance where they're dancing around me and the song is about me. So beauties, they hold me, lit by the moon, and these cameras are rolling as I boogie and croon. This is my story, written by me. I dangle my glories, I pamper and preen. I'm so nearly perfect, and everyone's green. So here is my picture, coloured by me, the tallest of poppies, as red as can be. But nobody's blue, because everyone's green. And God bless the faint hearts, the dowdy and meek. For they are imprisoned, and I'm their release. So don't you be yellow, when everyone's green. The reason for our divorce had been mental cruelty. The survivor's message board had warmth generated by anonymous disinhibition and shocking, liberating detail. Getting it off our chests. No self-blame. Looking ahead. Maybe even looking for love. There was one man who'd suffered at the hands of his partner. I was enthralled by how the set pieces, the suffocations, the harangues, the psychological cul-de-sacs, the sleepless nights spent chewing over paralyzing injustices, how they all mirrored mine. Exactly. I was drawn to him and asked privately for his number. 
Oh, God. I checked it again, trembling. It was my ex-husband's number. Pulling his heavy wooden front door shut, Arkwright paused. He looked up at the early morning sky above the factory as it brightened with the dawn, but darkened with the sooty smoke that rose in steady, thick plumes from the lines of brick chimneys. Another long day of toil ahead, he thought, standing at his machine, spitting fire, coddling steel and grinding dust just as his father had done and his grandfather before that. He reached into his jacket pocket, gently placed an airbud in each ear, pressed play, and returned to his gardening podcast. Blooming marvellous, thought Arkwright. For those that don't know already, every Thursday at 8 p.m. here on Corn Radio, there's Box 39, a magazine of conversation, music, humor, and local interest stories listened to by people across Northeast Essex and in 203 countries around the world. the Spartan apartment until after the council had taken away the body of her mother's uncle. She'd never met him. She knew nothing about him, but was nevertheless the only relative he had left, those in America for generations notwithstanding. He'd had no books, no paper, pens, no television, no creature comforts, prim, proper, joyless. He had only three photos one with siblings in 1940, a bleak one of him posing stiffly alone in 1959, and a 1972 picture, surveillance-like, him crossing a street seen from an upstairs window. Was it taken by a lover? Ellie wondered. These are very lovely onions written by human beings. I am a human being. The writers are only allowed to use 100 words. We call it an onion. Animals are not able to use ironic labels, like onion, when what you are listening to is in fact not a vegetable. Indeed, animals are not able to write onions, but they do eat vegetables. This is a show for human beings. I am a human being. Simon and Jane felt 
decidedly less gung-ho about their mission after gazing out silently from their balcony at the sprawling bustle of 16 million strangers. Back in Colchester, Lagos had been a mere dark orange dot in the atlas. They'd lost their handwritten notes, so they used a PC in the hotel lobby to review the emails and other data to prepare for the planned confrontation. The first search coughed up a sight they'd never seen before. It was like a shard of glass, it said. Jane Mary is not the deceased Nigerian finance minister's widow. It is an obvious scam. My toxic in-laws called me the Black Widow, convinced that I'd murdered my husband, Michael, to cash in on his life insurance policy. It was ridiculous. I'll admit I can imagine scamming a big, rich company that wouldn't miss the money. But the very idea that I could murder the love of my life. <laughs> Insane! This cruelest kind of slander stung all the more when their nasty emails arrived every Valentine's Day. I went down into the cellar. The table was set. Candles, chocolates, wine. Shackles clinking, Michael's emaciated figure stepped from the shadows and gave me a big hug. Listening to Bill's Big Bag of Only Onions. Only Onions is a Guppy production for Colne Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. Mm-hmm.